This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, folks, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. My name is Sam Caston-Smith, and joining me today is Will Bushman. We're here. Now, you might notice that my voice still sounds a little sick. That's because I haven't had a cold for three weeks. <laughs> we recorded three of these episodes in one day for a particular reason. Uh, I am going to be going on sabbatical through the months of September, October, and November, spending time both restoring different parts of my soul and ministry and everything else, but also diving in to some real interesting and uh, exciting research projects that I'm, I'm really looking forward to. And coming back after the, the last weeks of my sabbatical, raring to go with some new projects. And so we have been busy putting all of these podcasts together so we can fill the gaps while I'm gone. Uh, we're also going to have a new series, which you'll find out about next week, uh, that's going to be on education in America, which I think you're going to find thoroughly fascinating, or at least I hope you do. But today, we are continuing our series, trying to get us at least to the Red Sea <laughs> so we can kind of put a bow on the first part of Moses' life. And when I come back from sabbatical, we will pick up with the years of the wilderness after the Red Sea. It just, it just that section of scripture is so wonderful and amazing. We'll pick up with it then. But today, we are in Exodus 13, and we are dealing with Moses. The, the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn has just happened, and now the Israelites are on their way to escape from Egypt, and God is going to do very mighty things. Yeah, in the movies, we always think this happens all pretty quickly, but it turns out there's some space between all of these things. Oh, yeah, the plagues are, are this is months, months in the making. And, and so by the time you get to even the Passover, like it's talking about, you know, the month of Nisan, it's 10 days after Moses warns Pharaoh that the firstborn is going to die before they even bring the lambs inside the house, and it'll be Nisan 14. Nisan's a month, not a, a car. 14th of Nisan before they slay the lamb. It'll be the 17th when they go through the Red Sea. And before that, each of these plagues isn't one on top of the other. It's There's some stretches of time that happen in there. So, yeah, this has been a story that's gone on for quite a long time. And it's not like Moses just walks out the door and Pharaoh's like, no, I changed my mind. Come back. It's like they're moving a million or so people. So even this part kind of seems slow and we finally get to the Red Sea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in the last chapter, it told us there's 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. And so tri traditionally the number, which is totally a guess, <laughs> you know, is 2 million people in total. But we, we have no idea. We don't know what the actual numbers were. So starting in verse 13, God is coming and you'll notice that there's a a real focus on the idea of the firstborn. So in Egypt, if you're not in the faith, then your firstborn dies. But for the Israelites, God is going to call on Moses and the Israelites. And what he's saying is, hey, your firstborn belong to me too. Hmm. But in life, I want you to devote their life. And so that's where it begins in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn, Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and of beast. So like if your bull has a calf or not, I guess a bull wouldn't have a calf. That would be really crazy. Yeah, well, maybe in today's world. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. So if, if a cow has a calf, guess what? That is got to be devoted and consecrated to the Lord, like all firstborn. And just like in that plague, the 10th plague, it took man and beast here now to consecrate to the Lord as the firstborn of both man and beast. And so then Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand, the Lord brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. A lot of this is going to be repetitive. We, we hit on this in the previous chapter. 
And he says, today in the month of Aviv, that's going to be Nissan later on. It gets, it gets swapped. You are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. This is a celebratory time. It's heavy, a lot of consequences going on there, but this is the day that you remember that God ultimately made good on his promise that was made to Abraham way, way earlier, centuries earlier. But God's faithfulness happened, the Passover was accomplished, and now you're celebrating to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you. Remember what leaven stands for, sin. No leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. Verse eight, you shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And so the idea of the festival is not just let's have a party. It's bring your kids into this. Let them see you celebrate the goodness of God and to remember what he's done for you. And so as a parent, you know, you, you got a little one who's, when, when's one year? She just turned one. Just turned one? How long ago? I don't know. What's the day? Ten days ago. Ten days ago? So you got a, a one-year-old. One of, the, one of the things that is the, the biggest responsibility of a parent is to celebrate the Lord in front of your kids. Mm. Because I tell you, kids are like excellent lie detectors. They can see if your faith means anything to you. They can see if it's precious. They can see if you, you know, if you're if you're humble enough to repent, if you really treasure grace. But if it's just, you know, a, a, a knickknack on the windowsill of your life, you know, it's it's not, you know, I just decorate my life with a little bit of Christianity over here. Mm. Kids totally know that you're you're a fraud. Like, this is not precious to you. And so what God is saying, like, I want you celebrating this in front of your kids. I want them to see that it's precious to you. It's not just one more thing to put on your calendar. Yeah. I want your kids to get this is important. God rescued me, and I'm going to celebrate him with everything I got. Yeah, because some of the classic, when they enter in the promised land, it's easy to forget about the bad and the good deliverance of God because... Now everything's okay. So it is something that we do need to train ourselves to do and have moments like that even in our year. I mean, yeah. That's why we have holidays. Yeah, totally. And and the other thing, like you find all the Old Testament has all of these different festivals that are going to be commanded, you know, that the people have to celebrate. But also beyond that, every time that God delivers the people somewhere, or a lot of the times that God delivers the people somewhere, he says, I want you to put up memorial stones there, like little pillars that are scattered all over Israel to remind the people that when the circumstances seemed bleak and there was no hope of success or triumph or victory, that God showed up and did something here. So that every time you walked by that, you would go, oh yeah, we serve that God mm. who delivers his people from hard circumstances. And when you go to the party, it's, oh yeah, we serve that God who delivers his people. And so you decorate your life with all of that. And that's because God knows we're weak and God knows we're short-sighted and we forget him as, you know, as soon as we turn off the podcast mics, we're distracted by the world. So verse nine, it says, and it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes. And that sounds really weird, but uh, even to this day, you know, the, the Orthodox Jews will sometimes you'll see this where they have, you know, tassels hanging from their hands or they'll, they'll have the what's called a phylactery box between their eyes with rolled up scripture put in between it. You can Google it. But what's the idea behind that is in everything you do, what, are, what do you do with your hands? Work. So all day long as you're doing different things and you have you know this sign on your hand that's flapping around, guess what you're reminded of all day long? Him. And you got it between your eyes. Like as you meditate, you know, the, the posture of meditation is kind of with your eyes looking up, pondering things. Like it's between your eyes. Like everywhere you look, everything you do, you need to, to build your life in a way that it directs your thoughts to the Lord. That the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. It's always before you. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you up out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statue at its appointed time from year to year. When the Lord, and by the way, all this is happening before the Red Sea. That's what I'm saying. There's some time that I feel like passes. But so it's like God is starting to give 
all these instructions and they haven't even had their greatest moment of triumph yet. Mm, yeah. You know, it's like he pauses and he's like, okay, here's what I want you to do with the calendar. And here's some of the stuff that I want you to do in worship. We still haven't even crossed the Red Sea yet, at least not in the, in the writing of it. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. And so here's, it's, it's repetitive, right? It's like, okay, well, yeah, we did that. We, we've been through this. All right, we get it. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey shall you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Like if it's not redeemed, if it's not devoted to the Lord, the fate is death. Every firstborn among man of your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us up out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly, stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that are first op to open the womb. But all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or the frontlets between your eyes. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. And so God's making a point like, okay, I'm delivering you now, but as you go forward, do not forget this. Hmm. And it's like, you ever felt so overwhelmed by a moment of worship or you've ever seen the Lord come through in a really big way and in your brain you think, okay, the next time a season of doubt comes, don't forget this moment. Don't yeah. forget this moment of worship. Well, God is kind of beating them to the punch with that same idea. Don't forget this. I'm going to tell you all the different ways. Like you're going to remember this moment, right? And here's the ways that you're going to, you're going to remember this. So verse 17 says, when the Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, which means that would have been the shortest route to go right up the, the shores of the Mediterranean into the land of, of Israel, where the Philistines are, where modern day Gaza is. That would have been like just the shortest route, but God did not lead them that way, even though it was near. For God said, lest the people change their mind when they see war and return to Egypt. So he knows they are not ready to see this people. Yeah. <laughs> like these people are, they're going to be among the first to come to the Iron Age. They're really fierce warriors. You know, they're still <laughs> very large warriors in the land. They're not courageous enough they haven't seen my faithfulness long enough yet to have courage to go there but god led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the red sea and the people of israel went up out of the land of egypt equipped for battle moses took the bones of joseph with him remember that was the promise when joseph you know is dying he says make sure you take my bones up out of here well moses grabs those bones and is making good on his promise uh, for joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from with you from here. And that's pretty wild. That Just the fact they were able to keep track of those things. Yeah, well, remember, that's probably in that pyramid we talked about. So, I mean, and, and it's in Avaris. It's a, it's a known location. It was there for quite a while. It's, it's kind of a little memorial thing that's always there reminding the people that Joseph made us promise this, when are we going? And it takes 400 years for that to come to fruition, which is pretty wild. And so it says they moved on from Sukkoth, which is the first place they come to camp. Then they encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud. And I don't know how you see this. I always imagine this as kind of like a swirling cloud that just reaches up into the heavens with some kind of a, a form and consistency. And it led them along the way. So that's by day. And it says, and in the night, a pillar of fire to give them light and that, that they may travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from the people. So in your mind, when you hear pillar of cloud, pillar of fire, what, what is it? What is that pillar? I just saw an AI of it. You guys won't be able to see this. Yeah, that's pretty cool. That's way bigger than I thought, or I would imagine, but yeah. 
I wish you guys could see this. Yeah, it's really cool. That is pretty cool. Check out the AI Bible official on Instagram. He does a lot of these. <laughs> it's interesting because, yeah, I, I think it's way larger than I would just imagine in my head. Yeah, those are. And I, why not? I mean, it's God. It's, it, it would be something to fear. I and mean, the want, presence of God is kind of represented by these pillars. Yeah, and two million people. You want the people even in the back to know that you're still leading. You know, you don't <laughs> yeah, want to be like a... Yeah, this isn't a puny pillar. Yeah. yeah that's, a good, that's a good way to see it. All right, so they're following God around. Who's leading them kind of southward trajectory rather than north to the promised land almost. And it says, The Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahiroth, between Migdol and the sea. In front of Baal-Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. And so I want to pause there for a moment. Hidden behind the language here in the Hebrew, there's some meaning that comes out. So when it says that God has taken them to encamp in front of Pi-Hahiroth, those words literally mean between the gorge. And so imagine this kind of canyon or a gorge. You're between two mountains, which means you're, you're stuck on both sides. Mm. You can't go left. You can't go right because you're in the middle of a gorge is the idea. You've got the, the sea in front of you that's looking across the sea. You're looking at, at Baal Zephon that's over toward the, the territory where the Canaanites would have come from. And now you're stuck is the idea. So you're between Migdol and the sea in front of Baal Zephon and says, Pharaoh will say to the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. They're totally trapped, in other words, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart. In other words, I'm going to pick a fight. I'm going to make them come out. He's gonna, they're going to see how absolutely like sitting duck you are, and it's going to draw Pharaoh out to think that he can defeat you. And he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, what is this we have done that we've let Israel go from, from serving us? And so I want you to pause for a moment and enter the mindset of the Egyptians. You've lost all of your industry, right? Your, your livestock, your herds have been decimated. Your crops are decimated. How in the world are you going to bounce back when two million in slave labor also bail? So you have no industry, no cattle, no livestock, but now all your slaves are gone. It would have been devastating for Egypt. So when they ask the question, what in the world did we just do that we let Israel go from serving us? And so it says, he made his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And so pause for a moment. And here again, you have this really kind of cool archaeological discovery because we're, we're operating off the premise that he's in Ramses. The Bible tells us he's in Ramses. We know that that's ancient Avaris. And when they do... Their digs there, they find that it's an ancient slave city. That's where they find, you know, what I believe to be Joseph's old tomb and the palace that's, you know, obsessed with the number 12 because that would be Joseph's family. But right near there is a city called Cantir. And that is where I think the lady's name is Catherine Bard, I believe. But she is an archaeologist who went there and found the largest garrison of chariots and horses in the ancient world that has ever been discovered and it's two kilometers away from Avaris. And so when the Israelites leave, and they're bailing, and they're you know like, let's get out of here. If Pharaoh is getting all of the chariots and horses and the entire army of Egypt, you, okay, so he's traveling way down to Thebes or Memphis, that it doesn't work. The timeline wouldn't have allowed him that much time. So the, the chariots and the horses had to have been near, and it just so happens that Kantir is two kilometers away from where Pharaoh's palace would have been. It fits like a glove. And so he's got the 600, you know, chosen chariots, which are going to be metal, high sophistication back in the day, along with all the other wooden chariots. And they're going after Moses and the Israelites. Makes sense. I mean, good thing we found that. Because that is a question people have. Like, 
how is he able to get all this going so fast? It, it seems like a little stretch of, you know, he's, like you said, having to travel all across Egypt to get his army. But Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that used to be a criticism of the skeptics because they would say, well, you know, why is Pharaoh living in a city with slaves? That doesn't make any sense. How does Moses wake up in a slave city and early in the morning go visit Pharaoh? Well, we found Pharaoh's palace. He built a palace in the slave city of Avaris, which is Ramses, which is exactly where the Bible claims that this slave city, the center slave city was. So fascinating. And it says, the Egyptians pursued them, all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pihahiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. They're trapped. There's nowhere to go. And I want to pause for a moment because I want to explain the significance of Baal-Zephon. So, because the Bible never throws out names like this or details like this without there being a purpose behind them. And this one is pretty cool. Baal Zephon is actually the name. It literally means Baal of the North. Zephon means of the North. And in the, the Baal cycle story of the creation of the universe. So this is the, the Israelites are on their way to go dwell in the land of the Canaanites where they're going to have to drive them out of the land, right? And the Canaanites worship Baal. And they believe that the worship narrative, their myth that they came up with goes like this. Yom, who is the sea serpent god, is like a tyrant who rules over all the other gods. And he's really oppressive. And you know none of the gods, they all feel super oppressed. And Baal comes along and Baal says, I'm going to free all of the other gods from this cruel tyrant god, you know, Yom. And so Baal goes to war against Yom. And the way that he defeats Yom is he takes his club and swoops down and smashes Yom right in the head. Ooh. So what do you hear there? You hear, here's somebody crushing the head of the sea serpent, right? Mm. You should hear Genesis 3.15 in that. That's kind of the proto-evangelion, the first, whatever, the first gospel utterance of the, of the scriptures. And so then he takes his body and he rips the body apart and uses the body to form the lands. And so what, what do you hear in that is the true, you know, here you have Baal, the God, who comes, smashes the yom, and rips his body apart to form land. Mm. Well, you're going to have Yahweh who's the true God, who is now, who's just come from humiliating all of the Egyptian gods and showing that they're powerless. And now he's saying, eh, we're going to take the long way. I'm going to take you to Baal-Zephon because this is where the Canaanites are going to believe that their God is the true God of creation. Let me show you that I am the true God of creation. I'm the one who is going to strike the sea and rip it open and bring the land to make a new creation a new beginning for my people. So God, who has just come from humiliating the Egyptian gods, is now introducing his people into the land of the Canaanites by humiliating the chief god of the Canaanites. That's the idea. That's cool. It is. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> I had to take Yom out. Oh, by, by the way, the Hebrew word for sea is Yom. So... A lot of echoes going on here. A lot of, a lot of similarities. Mm -hmm. hey, come on, just throw something out there. <laughs> I don't know what. I don't know. Yom Kippur. That's day. day can, yom can mean day or sea. <laughs> That's why Hebrew is very yom confusing. Yom. Yes. Hebrew is. Well, <laughs> didn't use vowels for a while. <laughs> All right. So, so verse 10, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly, which is totally Obviously. understandable, right? Yeah. You're, you don't have weapons. You're not trained for war. You're slaves. Like, you got women and children. Like, this is not going to go well for you against the mightiest army <laughs> in the history of the world that's amassing to come mow you down with chariots. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. I want to be mad on, but I can't. 
<laughs> Why not? I don't know. That's a that's a human nature thing. I feel like yeah. you're seeing this huge army. You're just like, what did we just go through? We we forget things easily as people. Yeah, you just, but the last however many months you have just witnessed God do how many things? I know. I think I, I'm, t- I'm I'm with you. This is our experience. I do it. You do it. We all do it. And the first moment that it doesn't go your way, seemingly. It's like, come on, God, like, what are you doing? And you people that led me to the Lord, you know, or led me out in salvation, you know, you promised this and now look at my life. This is the human experience. Like we are good at grumbling, complaining, um, pretty, pretty gross though. I didn't see the plagues though. That, that might've changed my mind. You know, those are pretty in your face kind of things. I don't know that it would have. Really? We're I want to say that it would have, but how long does it take you after some like monumental moment in your life before you're already like, all right, God, what have you done for me lately? Yeah, but what I'm saying is God doesn't hit me with 10 of those in a row. You know, over the months. <laughs> Plague style? <laughs> I don't know. I'm trying to be charitable to these people. All of my pride and arrogance wants to say, yeah, I wouldn't have done that, but I'm, yeah, I'm sure that I would have. Um, so they said to Moses, they, they're crying out at him. They're ripping into him. And Moses said to the people, fear not. And I love this. This is really good advice for all seasons of life. Ready? Fear not. Number one commandment, most repeated in all the scripture right there. Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. That's just awesome. Yeah. And like, a real change in Moses, it seems like. Yeah. Like, like he doesn't let their grumbling get to him. He's like, yeah, totally. Every other time they've come to him and it's like, we're coming after you, Moses. What's Moses' response? He turns around and gives it to God. Like, all right, God, why, why have you brought me out here to be with this people? And da, 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 da. And now Moses is like, it's like he's standing, you know, with God at his back saying, hey, snap, <laughs> get yourself together. Fear not, stand firm, like dig in. It's almost like military, like you're not going to be moved. You're not going to be shaken. Do you know the Lord has your back? Stand firm and you're going to see the salvation of the Lord. Remember what he's done for us over the course of this past year? Like just watch what he does. He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And what's your role? really instructive you have only to be silent Mm. Uh, how do you how do you take that when you hear that the lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent where does your where's your mind go with that i talk too much (laughs) (laughs) and not even just talking but yeah in any situation you know what goes to our minds first is just we just start spinning and trying to figure out and just trying to do it ourselves and you know, God comes along somewhere, hopefully in our brains eventually, but to be honest, it's not always first. Yeah. Yeah. I think about how many crises in my life they come and I'm like, I don't, I don't know. I'm totally out of control. I can't control this. I want to control it, but I'm going to go out there and spin my wheels and I'm going to work myself up in anxiety and I'm going to lose sleep over this. And I'm going to, I'm going to try with everything I've got to throw everything I have at it, even though I know what I have is not enough and it's not what it takes but I'm going to try to own it like I control the results. And, you know, one of the, my favorite quotes, you've heard me say this a lot, is duty, duty belongs to us, results belong to God. But believing that is hard. Yeah. And so saying, hey, the Lord is going to fight for you. The results belong to him. You have only to be silent. You know, it's like the staff devotions that we did this past Tuesday where we talked about in Psalm 91 all the different mm metaphors that the Lord invites you to see him as that he's your fortress. He's your surrounding wall. He's your shield. You know, all of these, these are refuge. It's all kind of metaphors where you get to be safe and quiet and at peace and rest where he's the one who's taking the brunt of the enemy forces. And that is, man, if we could just believe that the Lord will fight for you, you have only to be silent. Get inside the fortress, get inside the refuge, stand behind him, do what he calls you to do, but then recognize that he's the one who brings the victory. And we're just so allergic to silence. Oh, man. 
<laughs> I'm yes. trying to think of when the last time I was silent and not asleep. Like, <laughs> like for an extended period of time. Probably when we were forced to do it when we were reading that spiritual disciplines book. Yeah. Like that maybe the last time. Yeah, it's rough. Without some, like not just silence, but without reading something or watching something or listening to something or just. Can I ask you an inappropriate question? Sure. How many, when you go to the toilet, do you have to have something with you? Yeah. That's like all of humanity. Like if I'm, if I'm going to the bathroom and I get all the way to the bathroom and I realize I don't have my phone or a magazine or a book or something, I have to stop and, and like uncomfortably <laughs> yeah, like shift gears to go back to get the phone or to get something because just to sit on the toilet is brutal or to be in the shower without a podcast playing or something that's got my mind engaged to where I'm not just silent allowing the Lord to talk to me. Yeah, it's, it's bad. It's our culture is just so full of noise. So... Be, be quiet. Go be quiet. Shut up. <laughs> Turn this podcast off. That's right. Be done with us. Uh, the Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. And so the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff. Stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, which is now plural, all of them, so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. This is such a funny response by God, I think. (laughs) It might have been my tone in which I said it. No, I think. (laughs) I mean, I think it's there. Why do you cry to me? Yeah, like, did he just expect Moses to know that this was a plan? (laughs) I think. Maybe. I mean, that's a good question. And the, you have Moses right now who's like, hey, shut up. Stand firm. God's got this. Yeah, we just thought it was his best speech yet. And all of a sudden, God's <laughs> like, what are you doing? Yeah, and I think I think he's speaking to the people through Moses here is the only way I can make sense of that. Because Moses isn't crying to him. He's, you know, firming up, shoring up the people. It's the people who were crying out to him. And so I think what it's meaning to say is the Lord said to Moses, tell the people, right? Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. And uh, so, you know, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea. It's going to divide and they're going to go through on dry ground. And I'm going to get lots of glory. And so then it says the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. And so there's something about the angel of the Lord, which we know is the pre-incarnate Jesus. That's right. That is associated with this cloud. He is leading them. So it's not even so much Moses that's leading them. God is leading them out of Egypt. Um, and so it says, the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and the, and the host of Israel. And there, was a cl- and there was the cloud and the darkness. So it's like, okay, daytime now gives way to darkness. And it says, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. So the Egyptians are coming to this gorge. On the other side of this gorge, trapped by the sea, you have the Israelites. Then you have this pillar of fire. And then you have the armies of Pharaoh that are trying to figure out, like, what do we do with this pillar of fire? <laughs> you know, like... How in the world are we going to make sense over of, of this? Like, how can we get beyond this? Yeah, they needed some space and some time to get two million people across the sea. Yeah, yeah, it's not like a lickety split kind of thing. So that's that's true. And so, verse twenty one, Moses is, has starts he starts putting into action what he has just received from God. It says he stretched out his hand over the sea. Like this would be a really cool miracle to be able to do. Like. The fact that God lets him be the one who like puts his hand out there, like there's something cool. special about you know his hand. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. Not, not mush, not marsh, not mud, dry land. And the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. I can't just, that'd be so wild. The waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. 
And the Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And who's not included in that? Did you notice? Oh, Pharaoh. Yeah. Pharaoh doesn't go in. Coward. So, so anyway, we don't believe that Pharaoh is in there. Um, but every part of his army, the horses, the chariots, and the horsemen all rush in. And uh, I want to stop here for a moment because the way that this whole thing is being described, remember he took them to Baal Zephon to show them I'm the genuine creator. It's not the Canaanite God who's the creator. It's not Baal who is the, the creator God. It is me. And now I want you to hear this. It says the angel of God does what? It says he drove the sea back. So in one instance, he's a pillar of fire that gives light to the one side and darkness to the other. Mm. Then the strong east wind comes, and what does it do? It begins to separate the water so that dry land emerges. And that's all of the the conditions of creation. Hmm. If you open up Genesis 1, there are two conditions that were told at the beginning of creation you see. You see darkness, and then God says, let there be light, right? But you also see that the, the spirit, ruach, which is the same as wind, is hovering over the surface of these lifeless waters, and then God says, let there be light, and bam, light emerges. And it says he separates the light from the darkness, and he calls the light day and the darkness he calls the night. And so there you see that, and they're separated from each other just as they are in this narrative. But then the ruach, the wind, or the spirit on the sea, goes to work in days two and three or the separation of the waters that bring forth the dry land, which is where life emerges on the third day. Plant life first comes up on the third day. And here you're seeing on the third day after Passover, by the way, light emerges in the darkness. The waters are split. Dry land emerges. And it's like God is saying, now it's time for life. And what is all that communicating? Remember Genesis chapter one? I am your creator and I'm your deliverer. So all of that is, is just really brilliant sovereignty God is, is preaching to them in the middle of this about his character, ordaining all of this uh, so that they see he is, he's the creator. They owe him everything they are. Verse 24, And in the morning watch, the Lord, in a pillar of fire and of cloud, Look down on the Egyptian forces. So this is after all of the Israelites have crossed through and now the Egyptians are in the midst of this, you know, cavern of water, you know. And it says that he looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily And the Egyptians say, let us flee from before Israel. The Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, all right, Moses, you get to do this too. (laughs) Stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back on the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. And so Moses stretched out his hand over the sea because you got to imagine if you're the Israelites, you're still in a panic. It's not just, okay, great, the Red Sea opened up nothing's been accomplished. You still have the bad guys chasing after you. So who cares which shoreline they murder you on? But now God comes and he validates Moses by saying, I want them, your people that are in a panic that have just lit you up about bringing them out into the land to die here. I want them to see you lift your hand again and wipe out the entire Egyptian army that my favor is upon you so much that I am validating your ministry So much that in some sense, when they offer gratitude to me, it's also to you because you're the vessel I've chosen to use. And I love that about God, you know, that he's, he doesn't just leave Moses to be their rag doll. Yeah. He, he really does validate this man and, and the way he conducts ministry. And I think it's interesting that the Egyptians had better spiritual sight because they see the Lord fighting for Israel and Israel is just like, what are we going to do? Oh no. (laughs) It's really true. It's really true. It's like, you know, uh, the scripture says even the demons believe and tremble 
you know, Satan, when, when he's talking about to, to the temptations to Jesus says, you know, if you really are the son of God, tell the stones to become bread. He recognizes that there's power in the Lord. And a lot of times the enemies of God recognize his power more than the people of God. Um, it's kind of a fascinating thought, but you're right. Yeah, the Egyptians recognize God as moving and they're, they're terrified, rightly. Verse 27, so Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, all of the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall of water to them on their right hand and their left. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. And so, you know, God has validated Moses and he has launched them into a new chapter of ministry as they head towards Sinai where they're going to receive the covenant of God. And it is very, very clear that God, his favor and anointing rests upon Moses. Because there's a lot of slave cities, by the way. Not every one of these slaves is in Avaris. Not every one of them has met Moses. Not everyone has seen all the interactions you know, up close and personal like those that are in the Ramses. And so God, this time in front of two million people, mm. I mean, they've all experienced the plagues and heard the plagues, but now they've seen the dude lift up his hand and they're like, whoa, <laughs> this, this guy, the Lord is really on him. Mm. Uh, maybe we should give him some respect. And so it says they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Briefly to both. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and through cycles up and down and back and forth. And, you know, they never, never get it perfect. Not even Moses, you know, Moses is going to fail. And his, oh, that's, that's, that's the thing, you know, all through scripture, all these people are constantly failing. And if there's a message in the scriptures, it's, it is the comfort of knowing that we fail too. God knows us, God sees us, and yet he's faithful to his people all over the place through their failures. And that's, that's a comfort. I think it's even interesting as you see like water and its means of judgment. You know, you think of Noah's Ark, you know, as Noah's going through the waters of judgment, and now you see even God again is clearing the way for his people to literally walk through judgment and then cast judgment on the Egyptians. It's good. Yeah, and then when you get to the New Testament, when it talks about baptism, mm. you know, it's those two things that you just mentioned that is referenced as pictures of baptism. You know, Noah's Ark is a picture of baptism through the flood where the whole world was perished and all the wickedness was washed away and there was a new beginning for all of humanity that's going to come through Noah. It's, you know, he becomes the new Adam in a sense with three sons and he's going to, you know, he falls just like Adam did with the, Instead of eating the fruit, it's drinking the fruit. And Adam is ashamed in his nakedness. Noah passes out drunk and naked, ashamed in front of his sons. Like it's telling you there's a new beginning and the old has passed. And in this story, you see they're leaving the land of death and bondage, but they go down into the waters as a picture of their death and up out onto the other side where the nation of Israel is truly born and they're going to have a covenant with God and a new calendar and all things are being made new when you get to the New Testament and, and Romans chapter 6, it talks about when you go down into the waters, it is a picture that you are being dead and buried with Christ. And as you come up out of the waters, you're being resurrected to newness of life. And the idea is you're leaving all of your past behind, all the brokenness, all the slavery, all the death, everything else that has plagued your life into the past is buried and dead with Christ. And now you come up out of the waters with a brand new chapter made new, righteous in the sight of God. And that's the whole idea of baptism. So yeah, I mean, and it says that they were baptized into Moses in the Red Sea when you read Paul. Mm. And so there's that idea of that federal head again, you know, Moses is leading them into a baptism. 
And it's also, by the way, uh, we talked about this when we did Genesis 15, if you want to listen to that, where when Moses, or I'm sorry, when Abraham is given a vision of how he can know that God is going to deliver his descendants, God says, okay, give me some parted carcasses, and he creates this little pathway between parted you know, carcasses that are torn in half, and he gives the smoking oven and the flaming torch that walk or that float between these two things. Well, that's the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud going between the Red Sea. But in the ancient world, how do the Canaanites see the Yom, the sea, when it's split in two? They see it as a sea serpent, a creature that has been torn in two. And so God giving Abraham this sight Hmm. centuries earlier is saying, I'm going to be the one to die. I will pledge my life because that's what walking through the carcasses mean. In the ancient world, when you would cut a covenant, you would walk between parted carcasses as if to say, if I fail to keep my end, I'll die. And God does that. I will make good on my promise to you, Abraham, or I'm willing to lay down my life. And in some sense, unknowingly, the Israelites, when they walk through the Red Sea, they're walking between parted carcass. In other words, they're entering into a new covenant season with the Lord, and they beeline it right towards Sinai, where they're literally going to enter into the covenant of the law, mm-hmm. which they will not keep, which means what? If you fail to keep the law, you deserve to die. If you fail to keep your end of the covenant, you deserve death. But God gives us his righteousness, and he takes the penalty of death for our failure to keep our covenant. But he keeps his the covenant of grace, the promise given to Abraham. And all that is being pictured here as the people walk through the Red Sea on their way to Sinai. And it's ultimately, you know, the the highlight of this ultimately comes true when you see Jesus, who is God, saying, I will die before I fail to keep the promise. And he dies between the carcasses on the cross. It's incredibly poetic beauty here but yeah that's that's rich rich stuff and ultimately even the life of moses is is looking forward to what jesus is ultimately going to do and you know we've we've done this before but it's been a while but i want you to see the life of moses next to the life of jesus so far and listen to the similarities so when moses comes along there had been 400 years of prophetic silence right Joseph goes into the land of of Egypt, and then Genesis ends, and you pick up an exodus, and 400 years have gone by. Well, when Jesus is born, there's been 400 years since the last prophet Malachi. So they're tracking. You have the midwives that disobey Pharaoh to save the Hebrew baby boys that were under an edict to be killed. On the other side, you have the magi that are going to disobey the maniacal tyrant Herod to save the baby Jesus because Herod had given an edict to kill baby boys. Moses falls from the life of a prince where he was considered to be an adopted, you know, the son of God, a Pharaoh, and he's going to now experience what it's like to live life as a fugitive in a foreign land. And you have Jesus who's going to experience what it's like to leave heaven's throne as the son of God to come down into a world where he gets to experience life genuinely as, a, as somebody who is foreign and, and poor. Um, Moses had to flee for his life from Egypt. Baby Jesus is fleeing for his life to Egypt. Moses is going to return after Pharaoh's death. And in the, in the nativity story, we see Jesus returns back to Israel after Herod's death. Moses meets his wife at a well, which is pointing you toward Jesus and his experience with the Samaritan woman at the well. Moses works as a shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd. Moses is marked by unrivaled humility until you reach Jesus, who is God in the flesh. Like You won't find humility like that. Moses and his family return to Egypt on a donkey. Jesus is going to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey to bring deliverance. Moses' first plague is to turn water to blood. Jesus' first miracle is to turn water into wine. Israel's going to be delivered by the blood of a lamb. 
We're delivered by the blood of the Lamb of God. Moses is going to deliver his people from slavery. Jesus is going to deliver us from our slavery to sin. And when you, when you get on the other side of the, the Moses is leading his ministry into the wilderness, you're going to see that this, this continues. You know, God gives manna to the Israelites. Jesus is going to tell us to pray for our daily bread, and he's going to say, I am the manna who came down from heaven. Moses is going to fast for 40 days on Mount Sinai. Jesus is going to fast for 40 days in the wilderness. The Israelites are repeatedly turning against Moses. Jesus is going to be repeatedly betrayed, even by those closest to him. When Moses goes on the mountain, his face is transfixed and he's transfigured. Jesus will go on a mountain where he is transfigured. Moses writes five books called the Pentateuch or the Torah. Jesus and Matthew's gospel delivers five famous sermons. And you see again and again and again, you know, both Moses is allotting the territories to the 12 tribes. Jesus is going to go out and recruit the 12 apostles. There's so much that is echoed in the two that you're to understand as you're, as you're going through this narrative, Jesus is accomplishing something far greater than Moses. He is a far greater Moses. He's not just, he's, he's not just the one who gives the law. He's the one who fulfills the law for us. You know, he's not just a redeemer who delivers us out of bondage in a physical sense. He's the one who literally rescues us from spiritual bondage and death itself. Like he's just far greater. Yeah. And so we're going to, to take our, our foot off the gas in the Moses narrative for a while. When I come back from sabbatical, we're going to pick up with the song of Moses, which is actually pointing us to our ultimate hope, which is going to be given in Revelation. It's a picture of what's coming in the end. It's really crazy. That's I'll a real that. long cliffhanger. Like cliffhanger a real teaser. long one. <laughs> and when Moses gets them out into the wilderness, which, which, by the way, the New Testament says all of the stories of Moses in the wilderness with the Israelites is given as examples to us, to be examples to us of what not to do, by the way. And so this is going to become very practical in how we live and how we move and how we operate in a life of faith and what we should not do. And a big hint is don't grumble, mm. be grateful and, and be quiet <laughs> and let God fight your battles. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us as we've gone through the first 14 chapters of Exodus, uh, we hope you enjoy the upcoming series that we are going to be producing on education in America and how we got to where we are today. Uh, if you do like that, or if you have requests for other series that you would like for us to tackle, other major issues that you'd like to hear, you know, what does the Bible say about this? Email us. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at will at riovistachurch.com or sam at riovistachurch.com or send it to both of us, actually. That'd be helpful. Uh, we would love to produce these every once in a while. We'll release a new series, and you'll look for the little blue thumbnail instead of the white one, and that'll mean we're not exegeting a passage. We're, we're getting into a cultural issue. So we hope you enjoyed your time with us today. Have a blessed week. See you next time. We hope you enjoyed your time with us, and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.